Okay, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, and we are studying verses 19 to 24, and I want to read them again, and then we will review just a little bit and, and move on into <coughs> the, our study today. Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. The question that naturally arises out of this text is a very simple one. Where is your heart? Uh, and the answer is found in verse 21. It's wherever your treasure is. Where's the concentration and preoccupation of your life? Where do you spend most of your time? What do you spend most of your time thinking about and planning for? Uh, if you ask that question to most Americans, the answer you receive is something about their house or their car or their bank account or their investments or retirement plans or personal appearance. Uh, the Sadly, as we saw last week, the religious leaders of Jesus' day had the exact same problem. They were totally consumed with things. The Pharisees were greedy, covetous, manipulative. They were constantly sought after things. Uh, now, remember the, the thrust of the whole Sermon on the Mount that covers Matthew 5, chapters 5 through 7, is basically to sweep aside the inadequate, insufficient, self-righteous standard of the Pharisees and reaffirm God's divine standard for life in his kingdom. And so, starting in this, these verses, Jesus says that you must have the right view towards wealth and luxuries. And then from verses 25 to 34, which we will see after I return from our vacation, uh, he says you have, the right, have to have the right view of necessities. Uh, so he's talking about two things here. First, luxuries, and secondly, necessities. And in both cases, the Pharisees had missed it. Uh, they had the wrong perspective on wealth, and they had the wrong perspective of necessities. Uh, and this text is talking about how we handle our luxuries. That is, our possessions beyond eating and drinking a simple meal, uh, sleeping, and basic clothing. The Pharisees were used to using their religious position to fill their pockets and get rich. Because to them, to be rich was to be holy. Uh, it was to say, hey, look how much I've got. I'm rich because God is blessing me. As I said last week, they were the first prosperity preachers. Uh, they thought riches were the stamp of divine approval on your life. God gave, you, gave wealth to you because you were so righteous. Uh, they equated money with the blessing of God. That was their entire system. And so the acquisition of material wealth became their greatest goal. Uh, because they could parade their supposed righteousness and say, look what God's done for me. Look how holy I am. Uh, in fact, Luke 16, 14 even tells us that the Pharisees were lovers of money. 
Uh, they were covetous. They wanted all these things. And so it's against the backdrop of the greed of the Pharisees that Jesus is speaking. And what he's saying here is that we must have a proper view of money, wealth, and possessions. And in teaching us how to deal with our luxuries, Jesus presents us three choices. There are two treasuries, there are two visions, and there are two masters that he gives us in this text. The first one, let's read again verses 19 to 21, and he's talking about an earthly treasury or a heavenly treasury. It says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Uh, we remember that Paul told Timothy that the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. Uh, money itself is not evil. It's the love of it. You can have none of it and yet love it like crazy. Uh, it's the love of money that corrupts. And the first part of verse 19 says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. If you literally translate what Jesus says here, it says, do not treasure up treasures for yourself. In other words, don't stockpile up money and things. What Jesus is talking about here is not the necessities of life that we use to live every day, but that which we just pile up and accumulate. Uh, it's not the things we have used to meet basic needs of food, clothing, and shelter. It's not that which we use to uh, assist the poor or to give to the Lord's work. It's not the money we save for future needs uh, or for making wise investments so that we can be better stewards of God's money in days to come. He's talking about that which is simply stockpiled and amassed just for our own selves. The person who looks at their bank account and goes, wow, look how much I've got there. Isn't that great? I'm just going to get some more. Um, he's talking about luxury. He's talking about that which is beyond what we can possibly use. It's all those things you don't use. You just stash somewhere. Keep telling yourself they're valuable, and so you keep them. Uh, the implication is that there's an abundance too numerous for use, and so you just pile it up. Uh, now, the Lord is not looking down on ownership of property and possessions. Otherwise, he wouldn't have told the Jews in Deuteronomy 28.11 that if they obeyed him, he would make them abound in prosperity. Uh, in the Ten Commandments, he said, you shall not steal. That statement alone presupposes that there's something of mine that you can't have. It's, it assumes that we have a right to possessions. Uh, so the Lord recognizes the right of ownership of goods and the right to personal property. And he's given us the right to possess those things. So he, want, he just wants to make sure our attitude is right in the manner in which we possess them. Uh, is, for example, Deuteronomy 8.18 says, But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth. Uh, and in 1 Timothy 6.17 it says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. So then what is Jesus saying? What's he forbidding here? Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. What does it mean? He's not talking about what we have. He's talking about our attitude towards what we have. Uh, he is, it's right to seek needed things. It's right to provide for our family. It's right to plan for the future. It's right to make wise investments. It's right to help the poor. It's right to have enough to carry on your business. But it's wrong to be greedy. It's wrong to be covetous. 
And so we come right back to the primary motive again. If I'm doing this to use it to the glory of God in the life of those around me and in his kingdom, then I have a right to all of it. But if I'm seeking after it to stockpile it, to hoard it, to keep it, to amass it, just so I can indulge myself in it, that is sin. And so you're right back to dealing with that attitude again. R.G. Letourneau was a self-trained engineer who invented, designed, and built large-scale earth-moving equipment. I'm sure Jim used some of his equipment through the years. His equipment was so well-known that his machines accounted for 70% of the earth-moving equipment and engineering vehicles that were used by Allied forces during World War II. Uh, and more than half of the 1,500-mile-long uh, Alcan Highway in Canada was built using Letourneau equipment. But R.G. Letourneau was a committed Christian who at various times served as the president of the Christian Businessmen's Committee and president of the Gideons International. He was very wealthy, and so he set aside 90% of his salary uh, and company profits for the Lord's work, and he lived on the other 10%. Uh, he founded Letourneau Technical College in Longview, Texas, that today is Letourneau University, specializing in degrees in engineering and aeronautical sciences. He also donated large sums of money to Tocoa Falls Bible College, in Tocoa, Georgia, and he built the little airport in that town so that he could fly there for various events at the college. Uh, by the age of 70, he had given away $10 million and had established a foundation worth another $40 million. He, he was known as God's businessman. Uh, he died in 1969, and on his tombstone are written Jesus' words in Matthew 6, 33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Uh, R.G. Letourneau had the right attitude towards possessions and the wealth that the Lord gave him. Uh, he made the kingdom of God the priority of his life and then gave all of his excess away uh, and kept only that which he needed to support his family. And when the money came in, it went right back out into the lives of people. It, it was went right back out, invested in the kingdom of God. So you see, it isn't the issue of whether you have money. It's the issue of what you do with what you have, isn't it? Uh, whether it's for you or for the kingdom of God and his purposes. Benjamin Franklin once said, a man wrapped up in himself makes a very small bundle. Uh, that's true. Uh, Colossians 3.5 says, greed amounts to idolatry. And that's what Jesus has in mind here. Money becomes your God. The things that we possess can become the idols of our lives. And so Jesus is saying, don't pile up stuff. The selfish accumulation of goods, extravagant luxury, breeds hard-heartedness towards the cause of God. Uh, look at verse 19 again. The key to Jesus' warning here is the word, yourselves. When we accumulate possessions simply for our own sakes, whether to hoard them or to spend them selfishly and extravagantly, those possessions become idols. If I want to invest and pursue a successful business, and if I want to be honest in what I do and do the best I can for my family and for others and for God and for the poor, that's one thing. But when I start piling it up for myself in extravagant luxury and become materialistic, I have violated this principle. 
D. Martin Lloyd-Jones <clears throat> once told the story of a farmer who bounded joyfully into his kitchen one day with a big grin on his face and announced to his wife that their finest cow had just given birth to twin calves, one brown and one white. And he said, honey, I feel the impulse to dedicate one of these cows to the Lord. We'll bring them up together when they're at a marketable age. We'll sell them and we'll keep the proceeds from one and we'll give the proceeds from the other to the Lord. And his wife went right to the heart of the issue, as wives are prone to do, and asked, which one is the Lord's cow? Uh, the white one or the brown one? And he replied, well, there's no need to worry about that, dear. We don't need to decide that now until we'll, we'll just raise them together. Decide that later. Some months later, he entered the same kitchen a little more slowly, looking very sad. His wife asked him why he was so sullen, to which he replied, I have bad news, dear. The Lord's cow died. <laughs> you know, I, I guess we laugh at that because we identify with that kind of approach, don't we? We all tend to store up treasure on earth. Uh, the pull of sin in us drags us down like gravity. And we want to be rich towards self and poor towards God. So it's usually God's cow that dies. Um, now, as we said back at the beginning, that we have to choose between an earthly treasury and a heavenly treasury. So what happens if we choose the earthly treasury? Well, look at the end of verse 19. Where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. By way of contrast, if we store up treasures in heaven... Moths, rust, and thieves cannot do any damage to our treasure. Now, this is interesting. In the Middle East, in biblical times, wealth was basically kept in three ways. Uh, they didn't have a banking system like we have. Their wealth was kept in commodities. And basically, there were three. And they all start with the letter G. There were garments, grain, and gold. Uh, now, by gold, we include other precious metals, silver, bronze, copper, gemstones. Uh, now, that's not to say there weren't other items of great value that indicated wealth, but those were the primary three things. Now, as I've told you before, in biblical times, garments were a very important commodity. Uh, in 2 Kings 5, Gehazi, remember him, the servant of Elisha? He wished to make a forbidden prophet out of Naaman's curing for leprosy, and so he uh, of leprosy. So he asked Naaman for a talent of silver and two changes of garments, because in that culture, fancy garments were very expensive, and so to possess them was to have wealth. What was it that Achan took in the defeat of Jericho? A beautiful mantle from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold that weighed 50 shekels. When Joseph was reunited with his brother brothers, he gave his brother Benjamin five changes of garments as a symbol of his love. When Samson told his riddle to the Philistines, he told them that if they could figure it out, within seven days he would give them 30 linen wraps and 30 changes of clothes. So they accused his soon-to-be wife of hoping to impoverish them, and threatened her and her family's lives if she didn't find out the answer from Solomon. So she cried and whimpered and begged him till he told her. 
And after they told Samson the answer, he responded with one of my favorite lines in all of Scripture. If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. <laughs> so he, he goes down to another Philistine city, Ascalon, kills 30 men, took all their garments and gave them to the Philistines to fulfill his part of the deal, of the bet. You see, garments were always an expression of wealth because they were a commodity of great value. The common people, which was the vast majority of people, usually owned no more than two sets of clothing, one to wear and another to wear when the other set was too dirty to wear. Uh, many only had one set. Most people owned some type of cloak to wrap around themselves in cold weather. Uh, the wealthy might own a few more changes of clothing, and often they would have a set for very special occasions, banquets, weddings, and other special events. That set would be very fancy, sometimes with gold threads woven into the garment. But remember, all the garments were made by hand, and the materials themselves were woven by hand, and the dyeing processes to get certain colors were unique, uh, being based on the use of various plants and sea life from which they could obtain a variety of colored dyes. So clothing was quite often expensive. Anyone who had more than two sets of clothing was considered wealthy. Uh, people simply didn't have a closet and a dresser drawer full of clothes like we have in the American culture. Uh, and even the wealthiest had far fewer garments than the average American does today. Uh, the invention of modern looms and sewing machines to produce clothing in mass quantity has made clothing very inexpensive compared to biblical times. But the people back then had a problem with their garments. You see, one of the primary materials from which they made clothing was wool. Uh, as you know, there were a lot of sheep in Israel uh, those days, and they were raised for both the wool and the meat. Uh, and so wool was a popular material for garments. They made their inner garments from linen, but their cloaks and many of their outer garments were made of wool because it was plentiful and because it was so warm. Warm, uh, you know, Wool clothing and blankets were very good for the cold weather during the winter and on the chilly nights in the Middle East. And But they had a problem with wool. What was it? Moths. Uh, moths love to eat wool clothing. Um, Actually, adult moths do not eat clothing. Uh, it's, uh, they, they lay their eggs in the clothing uh, made from any kind of animal fibers, whether it's wool or mohair or fur or feathers or silk or leather. And those eggs hatch into some very voracious fabric-eating larvae. Um, and in biblical times, they couldn't prevent that from happening. Uh, even the richest people had difficulty in keeping and maintaining their woolen garments because of the moths. These days, we don't have as many woolen garments, particularly here in Florida, where it doesn't get nearly as cold as up north. Uh, but with modern pest control processes, it's fairly easy to prevent moths from laying their eggs in woolen garments and subsequently destroying them. Uh, I remember as a kid that my mom would keep mothballs in the dresser drawer where she stored uh, my dad's old military uh, blanket that was made out of wool. Uh, all you had to do was smell those mothballs. You knew why the moths didn't like them. <laughs> so, but, but they didn't have mothballs in biblical times. So the moths easily damaged 
woolen garments, thus rendering them worthless and without value. Another way they stored their wealth was in grain. Do you remember what the rich fool said? This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. His wealth was in grain. Now, do you notice that word rust that's used in verses 19 and 20? Well, let me burst one of those traditional theological bubbles here. Okay? Despite the fact that the King James translators use the word rust to translate this word, there is neither biblical nor non-biblical evidence for this word to be translated this way. The word means eating or consuming. Uh, because the word can mean to cause deterioration in something by consuming it, the King James translators took it to mean rust, in which the oxidation of metal destroys the quality and the value of the metal. The problem with their logic, because they're tying it into the gold, is that neither gold nor silver rust. Uh, even pure gold coins that had been recovered from ships that were sunken in salt water for a couple of hundred years still shine brightly. Uh, even the foremost lexicon of the Greek language, Bauer, Danker, Arndt, and Gingrich, states this, quote, the interpretation corrosion or rust finds no support outside this passage, end quote. Uh, but because it was such a long-standing tradition to translate the word as rust, several modern translations, including the New American Standard, have continued to do so. I really wish they didn't do that. Uh, there are a couple of modern translations which translate it more in line with what this word is referring to. The NIV uses the word vermin. The Lexham English Bible uses consuming insect. Uh, so you know what the problem was with storing grain back then and continues to be today? Mice, rats, worms, all kinds of vermin. Uh, in fact, this is a shocking statistic, even today, according to official government sources, at least 20%, one-fifth of the world's stored grain is eaten or contaminated by rats and mice every year. Can you imagine the percentage, was, what it was in biblical times? Uh, when they didn't have the pesticides and other rodent control methods that we have today? And the problem is that if you have all your wealth tied up in grain, those little critters are going to get in there and eat it up. There was a third commodity that they put their treasure into, and that was gold or precious metal. And, of course, the problem with that was that thieves break in and steal. So you would lose your riches in that way. And in order to prevent that, people would go out at night and bury their treasure in a field uh, and try to find a way to mark it so they could come back later and dig it up when they needed it. That was the basis of Jesus' illustration in Matthew 13 of the kingdom of heaven being like a treasure hidden in a field in which a, which a man found and hid it again, and then he went and sold all that he had to buy, to buy the field. Uh, but if a thief was lurking around and saw you bury your treasure, he could go dig it up and steal it. In fact, the word, <coughs> the word Jesus uses here, which is translated break in, 
is a word which actually means to dig through. Uh, the word refers to thieves digging through the sun-baked mud walls and mud bricks on the side of a house or building to steal the treasure inside. And you could use the word to refer to a thief digging your treasure out of the ground also. So your garments would be eaten by moths. Your grain would be eaten by whatever kind of insect or vermin got in it. And your gold would be taken by thieves who would dig through the walls of your house or wherever you had hidden it to steal it. Jesus' point is that if you hoard it, you'll lose it. It's unsafe and insecure. Nothing you treasure up here on this earth is safe and secure. What do we do today? Well, we've got our mothballs and our rat poison and our burglar alarms, but that still doesn't stop the rats from eating the grain or the thieves from stealing our stuff, does it? And in this modern day and age of computers, thieves now steal people's wealth by hacking into their accounts or by conning them out of their life savings simply by getting them to give them information that allows the thief to steal it. I have a good friend who fell victim to a scammer who convinced him he was from his bank's fraud division and needed to log into my friend's account to view some alleged problem, and he managed to get my friend to give him his password, and within a matter of minutes, my friend lost all the money he had in savings, almost $30,000. None of that stuff's really safe, is it? And even if we manage to keep our possessions perfectly secure during our earthly lives, we certainly leave every single bit of it behind when we die, don't we? You're going to leave it all behind. There are many multi-millionaires who will be paupers in eternity, and there are paupers in this life who will be heavenly billionaires. Where's your treasure? Is it always the Lord's cow that dies, or do you invest in his kingdom? Uh, and since the earthly treasure is subject to being destroyed or stolen, Jesus says that instead of that, verse 20, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. When our time, energy, and possessions are used to serve others and to further the Lord's work, they build up heavenly resources that are completely free from destruction or theft. Heavenly security is the only absolute security. But then Jesus takes it a step further. He points out in verse 21 that a person's most cherished possessions and his deepest motives and desires are inseparable. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Either they will both be earthly or they will both be heavenly. It's impossible to have one on earth and one in heaven. James 4.4 tells us that friendship with the world is hostility towards God. And therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Your treasure will always be where your heart is. Jesus is not saying, listen carefully, Jesus is not saying that if we put our treasure in the right place, our heart will be there in the right place. Rather, he is saying that the location of our treasure indicates where our heart already is. Okay? Spiritual problems are always heart problems. Sinful acts become a, become a, uh, come from a sinful heart, just as righteous acts come from a righteous heart. So as always, the heart must be right first. In fact, if the heart is right, 
everything else in life falls into its proper place. But you must not think of the heart as referring only to your affections. When the Bible uses that term, it refers to the whole inner man, the core of our total being, the wellspring of all that we do. That means that Jesus is telling us that where our heart is, there will be all of our total being. Not only will our affections focus on our treasure, but our entire, our entire self will be entwined in it. And as a result, what happens to our treasure happens to us. Kent Hughes has some excellent insights to verse 21 that I think we need to ponder. It's a bit lengthy, but it's so good at helping us understand this important matter that I want to read the entire thing. Here's what he wrote. Quote, This verse is a gracious mirror in which we can see where our heart really is. It is natural and right for our vocation, our education, or our home to occupy a large place in our thoughts. But Christ warns against a total earthbound absorption with them. Realizing that where our treasure is, there is our heart also, we would do well to ask ourselves, one, what occupies our thoughts when we have nothing else to do? What occupies our daydreams? Is it our investments, our position? If so, those are the things we treasure, and that's where our hearts really are. Two, similarly, what is it that we fret about most? Is it our home or perhaps our clothing? If so, then we know where our treasure is. Three, apart from our loved ones, what or whom do we dread most losing? Number four, what are the things we measure others by? This question is very revealing, Mirror, because we measure other people by that which we treasure. Do we measure others by their clothing, by their education, by their homes, by their athletic prowess? Do we measure others by their success in the business world? If so, we know where our treasure lies. Fifth, lastly, what is it that we know we cannot be happy without? End quote. Those are some excellent insights into Jesus' words. And all of us would do well to consider them carefully. Is our treasure wrapped up here in earthly things or is it in heavenly things? When the Jews returned to the land from Babylonian captivity and turned to the word of God, a revival took place. As the word was taught and the people became convicted of their sin, they began to praise God and they determined that they would begin obeying him, and so they financially, faithfully financially supported the work of the temple. And that was the first initial act of obedience on their part. They gave of their treasure to the Lord's work. John MacArthur says, revival that does not affect the use of money and possessions is a questionable revival. Why? Because when the heart is right, the treasure is poured out to God. And so in terms of spiritual life, you're always dealing with a heart attitude because it's out of the heart that a man or woman operates. As Proverbs 23, 7 says about a man, for as he thinks within himself, so he is. When the heart is right, our treasure will be sent towards God because wherever our treasure is, our heart is, has an inseparable attachment to that. And conversely, wherever our heart is, that's where we put our treasure. So our heart has to be right. And if our heart is right, then everything will be right. That's why Jesus preaches this sermon the way that he does. 
If the heart is right, it won't be proud. Rather, it will be cowering like a beggar in spirit, mourning in meekness. If the heart is right, it won't violate the law of God. Rather, it will keep the law of God. If the heart is right, not only will we not murder, we won't even be angry with others. If the heart is right, we won't commit adultery, not even in our heart. If the heart is right, then we will not approach religion hypocritically and superficially and do our giving before others to be seen by them. We won't pray in some grandiose way in order to be admired by others. And if the heart is right, we will not store up for ourselves treasures on earth like the Pharisees did. Rather, we will deal with our treasure, which God has graciously given to us by investing it in his eternal kingdom. Remember, what we keep, we lose, and what we, but what we invest with God, we gain eternally. God's principle for his children has always been the same. Back in Proverbs 3.9, it says, Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. Give him the first part. You don't want it to be the Lord's cow that died. Giving to the Lord's work is to be a priority for a Christian. And as a result, as a result, verse 10, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. You'll never be able to invest with God without getting a dividend. You'll get back all the investment back and more. In Proverbs 11:24, it says, there is one who scatters and yet increases all the more. And there is one who withholds what is justly due, and yet it results only in want. It's amazing, isn't it? You would think that the one who scatters what God has given him would run out of money. But the reality is that the Lord keeps on providing so he can give away more. But the guy who holds back that which he should have given just seems to get poorer and poorer. Over in 2 Corinthians 9.6, Paul gave the same principle with different words. He said, now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. That's the Lord's formula for earning eternal dividends in the heavenly treasury. In Luke 6, Jesus said, give and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. In other words, God only gives you a return on what you've invested. All of our spiritual, all our spiritual life long, we fight the battle of where we put our treasure, our luxury, our wealth. Put it in heaven. Receive an eternal dividend. Listen to Proverbs 19:17. This is a verse to highlight or underline in your Bible. It says, "One who is gracious to a poor man lends." To the Lord. Now, Proverbs 19:17. One who is gracious to a poor man leans, lends to the Lord. Now, what's the basic principle of a loan? That you're going to get paid back, right? So when you're gracious and generous to the poor, you're lending to the Lord. And then the rest of the verse says, and he will repay him for his good deed. God will pay you eternal dividends. So don't be earthbound. Don't be putting treasure in this world. Don't stockpile your stuff here. Invest it in forever. That's the heart of the matter. Now, what is this treasure in heaven that we're to store up? What's he really talking about here? Well, we could talk about the fact that our treasure in heaven is an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for us. 
as Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1, 4. We could say that our treasure in heaven is Christ more than anything else, or that our treasure in heaven is a faithfulness that will never be removed, a life that will not end, a love that will never cease. And we could talk about it in all those kind of generalities. But let's talk about it in very, very specific terms. What is he talking about here? Simply stated, he's talking about our money, our luxury, our wealth. Let me show you this. Look at 1 Timothy 6.17. 1 Timothy 6.17. This is a comparative passage which essentially indicates to us the very same thing. Paul writes to Timothy and he says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. In other words, don't let your riches make you proud. Don't trust in them. Instead, trust in God who gives us our wealth. But now watch verses 18 and 19. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Did you get that? The call of God upon our lives regarding our luxuries and our wealth is that we distribute and we share as opposed to hoarding it and stockpiling it. And the word translated storing up in verse 19 is the very same word, thesaurizo, that we talked about in verses 19 and 20 of our text in Matthew 6, treasuring up for themselves treasure. What does it mean then to store up treasure in heaven? It means to be generous and to share the riches that God has given to us. And that's how Paul says we lay a good foundation for the future. That's when we're in heaven, the future, so that we may take hold of that which is life indeed. That is all the fullness of our eternal life. In other words, when we're generous and giving and sharing the riches and wealth God has given us here on earth, we're preparing ourselves to receive the full potential of all that eternal life can mean. The more I send ahead into glory, the more the glory when I get there. The greater the investment, the greater the reward. In Mark 10:21, Jesus told the rich young ruler, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And we tend to look at that and say, well, he was consumed with his own wealth and possessions and wasn't willing to give it up to follow Christ. And that's true. But we often miss the point that we may say we are willing to give up all to follow Christ. But is that really true? How attached are we to the money and things we possess? Are we willing to give up our earthly treasure in order to gain heavenly treasure? Look with me over at, math, at Luke 12 for a moment. In Luke 12, 13, someone came to Jesus and tried to get him to take his side in a dispute with his brother about their family inheritance. And Jesus refused to do that. And then he launched into a lesson which included the story of the rich man who built the larger barns to hold his grain and ended up losing his soul. And then he went on to describe how God takes care of the birds and the flowers. And then in verse 33, Jesus says, Sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out. An unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes nor 
near Nordmoth destroys. In other words, he's saying, don't hide your money in money belts that are going to wear out. Instead, put it in heavenly money belts that nothing can destroy, and the result is going to be unfailing treasure in heaven. Why should we do that? Because verse 34, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's where our investments are to be because they're eternal, not temporal. Flip over a couple of pages to Luke 16. I want to sort of bed down in this passage for a bit. Jesus has just given the parable of the unrighteous steward who got into trouble with his master over the management of the master's money, and then he shrewdly got out of trouble by collecting some of the money from those who owed his master money. And then Jesus says in verse 9, And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. First of all, understand that he calls money the wealth of unrighteousness, because in and of itself it has no righteous value. Okay, And when he speaks of making money for yourselves by means of that money, he is saying to invest it in gospel ministry, in evangelizing the law, so that when they become believers, then thus they will become believers and thus they become your friends. And when you invest your money in the souls of people, those who die before you will someday greet you in heaven in thanksgiving for what you did. When you use your money to reach the lost with the gospel, those who receive Christ will become your friends who will receive you into the eternal dwellings in heaven. And then Jesus gives us this self-evident statement in verse 10. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much, and he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. What he's saying is that your circumstances don't determine faithfulness, your character does. You hear people say, well, if I only had more, I would give more. No, they wouldn't. People have, who have everything often give nothing. It's never about circumstances. It's whether you're looking at heaven or looking at earth. It's whatever, whichever perspective has captured your heart. It's not if I only had more, I would give more. It's what are you doing with a dollar that you have? If you're concerned about what is eternal, if you're concerned about your money being used by God to promote gospel proclamation around the world, that's your perspective, whether you have a little or whether you have a lot. Dealing with money with a heavenly view is never a matter of how much you have. It's about integrity and spiritual character. If you're interested in investing in eternity, you do it. If you're not, you don't. Instead, you spend your time fiddling around fiddling around with it on things that are going to burn up. No matter how little you have or how much you have. It's where your heart is that your treasure goes, whether you have a little or a lot. The amount you possess is not the test of your character. If you are self-indulgent, if you're materialistic, if you're irresponsible, if you're any of those things with the little that you have, then if you had more, you'd be the same. You're just not committed to heaven. You're just not committed to the kingdom. To say it another way, verse 11. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? You got a problem here. Not only is what you do with your money in terms of your perspective an indication of faithfulness or unrighteousness, 
but it has implications on your eternal reward. That's what verse 11 is saying. Jesus is saying, look, if you haven't been faithful in how you employed your unrighteous money, <coughs> who's going to entrust the true riches to you? Do you think you're going to get a reward in heaven for that? Folks, if you don't invest your wealth in the work of redemption, you're impoverishing yourself in the future. Jesus is saying, do you think God is going to reward you in eternity if you frittered away and wasted away your stewardship of what he gave to you in this life? In other words, you can buy yourself endless junk and trinkets and creature comforts and earthly possessions, all of those things that are going to burn up. And when you come into the presence of the Lord, you shouldn't expect him to give you the true riches, that eternal reward that comes to those who are faithful. And now then he zaps them again in verse 12. There he says, and if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? He started out in verse 10 with a general issue of faithfulness in little or much. Then he moved to faithfulness with money. And now he moves to the fact that the money you've been unfaithful with isn't even yours. It's a stewardship. You don't even own what you think you own. It belongs to someone else. Who? God. You're just a steward. You're, you're like the steward in the story. This is connection to the parable. You don't own what you have. It all belongs to God. Everything you have is a stewardship, not just the money you give to God, not just that which you give to the church. Everything you have belongs to God. It's all to be used for his glory. Everything, even your eating and drinking, is to be to the glory of God. And if you're sinful in the use of your money, then who's going to entrust you the true riches? You're going to forfeit your reward. If you haven't been faithful in using that which belongs to God, then who's going to give you that which is your own? Which is another way of saying you're going to forfeit your eternal reward. You won't receive that which you look forward to. You see, all true believers will be in heaven. But we're not all going to have the same level of commendation. And we're not all going to receive the same rewards. So look at your heart. How faithful are you in how you use your money? Understanding that this has implications for your eternal reward. And if you're not faithful with that, you will forfeit that which really could belong to you in eternity. The tragic irony of this kind of sinful self-indulgence is that the more you waste of that which belongs to God on yourself, on useless earthly things, the less you have forever. The true riches are over there. What you really want to own is the treasure that God gives to those who've been faithful stewards of money. You have to have the two, the 2 Corinthians 4.18 perspective. We do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things that are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Final point, then we'll go back to Matthew 6. Verse 13, no servant can serve two masters for else he will hate the one and love the other or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in wealth. There's another maxim and this is predicated on the Greek verb here which is translated serve. It means to work as a slave. It's a whole consuming life. We're not talking about an occasional act of obedience. We're not talking about a part-time job or an eight to five kind of job. We're talking about a purchased slave, the property of a master who has singular and absolute control over that slave, and that slave could never have a relationship with anyone else. The slave was like a tool for his master's use. He had no time that was his own. He had no possessions that were his own that didn't belong to his master. 
He had no movement in his life that was not subject to his master. And in the same way, you cannot serve God in wealth. It can't be done. You're going to hate one and love the other. You're going to be devoted to one and despise the other. So make your choice. Either you're going to serve God. That means you're going to take your wealth and invest it in what honors God. Or you're going to serve money. And that means you're going to take it and use it for what you want here in this life. But you can't do both. You have to decide. Conflicting demands will produce conflicting emotions and attitudes. Well, that was some heavy stuff, wasn't it? That's stomping on our toes kind of stuff. And I want you to understand this is so convicting to me. I can get into the habit of thinking, Lord, I try to be generous with you. I give to the church and some other ministries. I'm okay with this. And then I go back and see how many times I've been stingy with the money that he's given me to be a steward over and I'm ashamed. I hope you have been convicted of that also. Before we stop for the day, I'm not going to be able to finish the text like I wanted to. But before we move on, let me just share with you a story of a man who did store up for himself treasures in heaven. Several years ago, there was a man in this church who faithfully served the Lord while he was with us. And he was always generous with what he had, giving to the church as well as to his family and others in need. But as will happen with all of us someday, the day came when the Lord called that man home to be with him. And a short time after he died, we received a call from a local attorney who told us that the man had a trust. And the man was entrusted with dispensing, the attorney was entrusted with dispensing the money in that trust in accordance with the man's declarations. And even though he had given much money to the church, and his family during his life, he still had an estate of over $800,000. And he designated his family to receive $200,000 of it, and the other $600,000 was dedicated to Lakeside. The elders were absolutely stunned. Uh, we had no clue we were going to be the beneficiaries of that man's generosity. But those funds came at a time when we were on rather unsteady financial times, and the Lord provided for this ministry in a tremendous way. Uh, we were able to make several uses of those funds, not only to take care of some things around here, but also for gospel ministry. That man's perspective was on heavenly things. And so he made sure that when he went home to be with Christ, most of his wealth would be used for the continuation of the Lord's work here on earth. He had stored up treasures in heaven before and after he went to glory. And since that time, there have been others who've done the same thing for us. Just recently, verse by verse, received a $5,000 legacy gift from someone who passed away. And because of that provision, we're going to be able to produce more broadcast in 2022 uh, so that the gospel goes throughout the Tampa Bay area on the radio and throughout the world over the Internet. The, that person also stored up treasures in heaven. Well, we're going to stop there. Uh, have more, obviously. We haven't gotten to the rest of the passage, but uh, I hope it was convicting for you. Let's, uh, any questions or comments before we go? Yes, Janetta. It's from his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. So, okay. Anything else? Okay. Frank, you've sat there so quiet all time. You know what I'm going to do. Close this, please. <laughs>